You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. My name is Kathleen Spencer-Chapman. I'm the Head of Policy, Advocacy and Research at Plan International UK. I'm really delighted to welcome you all to this event, both those of you in the room and those who are joining us online as well. Um, on the occasion of the uh, anniversary of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, and I think it feels absolutely the right thing to be doing to be having a conversation about the voice and agency of adolescence uh, when we're thinking about the fulfilment of the promise of both that convention and the Sustainable Development Goals and the Leave No One Behind commitment. Um, before going any further, I've just got a few housekeeping announcements for those of us here. So firstly, if there is a fire alarm, it is a real fire alarm. So we just need to leave the building by the way you came in. Um, and the bathrooms are also just near the front uh, entrance on the left-hand side. So I'm really pleased now to uh, invite Simon Gill, who's one of the acting executive directors of the ODI, to introduce the event. Brilliant. So welcome, everybody. Welcome, particularly those of you in the room, but also welcome. We've got a lot of people online as well. So we're talking to both groups of people. I'm delighted to be here. I mean, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, wanted to welcome you on behalf of ODI. This is a critical piece of work for ODI. Um, both the GAGE programme, and I'll, I'll tell you about some of the other work we're doing as well. Actually, I feel personally very pleased to be here. My wife's been very committed to this agenda for the last three decades, so she'd be delighted to hear that I'm actually speaking. And I've also got an adolescent daughter who I ho also hope will be pleased to see me standing up here. But what I wanted to do was just to, well, welcome you as... as as, as we've said, it's the, it's the anniversary or the 30th anniversary of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, there's a nice quote from UNICEF, which I'll just let me read to you because I think it nicely captures what we're about and what the convention is about. It's inspired governments to change laws and policies and make investments so that more children finally get the health care and nutrition they need to survive and develop. And there are stronger safeguards in place to protect children from violence and exploitation. It has also enabled more children to have their voices heard and participate in, in their societies. And that's a lot of what this is about. It's making that statement a reality. And hopefully today we'll be sharing some of that reality. Um, there are other anniversaries coming. Um, it's the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Platform for Action. And we need to ask ourselves, in the context of that and other anniversaries, both the SDG 5th um, anniversary and the run-up to um, the Agenda 2030, are young people's voices being heard? And what can we, as development agents, um, learn from the work that we're doing and, and their voices so that we can learn from and take into account their voice? Um, so this is a lot about adolescence um, and adolescence, both boys and girls, but I think it's particularly important to reflect on the experiences of adolescent girls in particular. Um, the work of GAGE, um, which has been ongoing for several years now, has highlighted the specific um, experiences of adolescent girls and, and really pointed out that, that those experiences have often been overlooked. Um, they're rarely consulted or counted in the formal SDG targets or indicators, and their voice and agency is often policed. 
when they are recognized, it's often they're seen as just as bolsters to family structures, as unpaid carers or domestic workers, or as an untapped labor force. And yet, they have their own potential to be unlocked and harnessed. And adolescence is a particularly um, time when they're going through rapid physical and cognitive changes um, and also have significant psycho and emotional changes as they look to interact with their peers and shape their identities. So really important and really pleased that we've got a real focus, a strong focus on adolescents, but particularly on adolescent girls. Um, and, and in terms of um, adolescent girls, um, I mean, they are, they are one of the most marginalized in societies, and so it's important that we, we look and focus on them. And, and, and it's exciting to see this as a focus for the work we're doing, the way we're celebrating the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child at today's event. It's a theme that cuts across much of the work on gender and young people at ODI. Um, we are investing in multiple programs, as well as the GAGE program. We have work on gender norms through a program called Align. We also have work ongoing on women's political participation in POGO. And I was just recounting to one of our colleagues in the audience about also we have work in Ghana and um, Uganda on, in a program called Youth Forward. And we've got an event next week. If, you're, if you want to come again into ODI next week, there's also a really exciting event on youth and digital societies. And that's, again, one of our focuses here at ODI. So you're welcome here today. But if you want to come again next week, you're also very welcome. Just let me say a couple of other things before handing back to the panel. Um, we're really pleased that we, I mean, ODI tries to work in partnership with others. We're aware there's a lot of you around, the, both in the room, on the panel who are partners, and online. And we try to work in partnership with others. And we're really interested in um, looking forward to hearing the reflections of other experts on the panel. Um, we are, I think, at this juncture, um, there's a real rollback and pressure on gender equality. There's a loud conservative bloc seeking to occupy much of the hard-won space civil society and feminist policy markers have chartered. And, and so we're also grateful for the support that um, DFID through the Research and Evidence Division have given to funding this piece of work. Um, and we're now looking at the pivotal years of the second decade of life. Um, and finally, um, with, uh, the theme of today is on the voice and agency. Hopefully, as well as the voice and agency, and we'll get that articulated well by the panel, just outside there are some photos um, taken by adolescent girls, particularly in Lebanon and Jordan. And I think that's another way of articulating, it's not voice as in spoken, but it's a way of articulating the views and perspective of adolescent girls. And it particularly focuses, as I say, on our research sites in this area in Lebanon and Jordan. So do, after the event, have a look at the photos. And just let me just leave you with one final thought. Um, one of the um, girls, it's a 19-year-old Palestinian girl called Juri from the Ain al-Hilwell camp in Lebanon. Um, one of the things that she said, which is quite a nice marker, and maybe we'll pick up by the panelists, this is what she said. Um, and I think it's appropriate as we enter 2020 we celebrate the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child. We celebrate some of these other um, milestones. This is what she said. Parents believe that marriage is protection for the girl, but it is actually injustice and suffering, and it burdens the girls with more responsibilities than they can bear. 
I only felt I am successful when I broke the early marriage cycle and went back to my studies and the life that every girl of my age should live. That's her voice. We're looking forward to hearing more voices. Thank you again for coming. I hope there'll be opportunities for you in the room to participate and those of you online to also contribute as well. But let me hand over to the panel. Thank you. Thank you very much, Simon, and a real thank you to ODI for hosting uh, this important event today. As we've heard, um, adolescents are a driving force for development, but if we're going to deliver on the 2030 agenda and really leave no one behind, we have to be looking at how we can provide young people with the tools and the support that they need um, to have voice and agency over their own lives and in their communities and countries as well, um, and also addressing the structural barriers to their being able to, to take that agency themselves. Um, and in particular, of course, uh, for some of the adolescents and especially girls who are the most marginalised um, and, and hardest, hardest to uh, provide that support to. Um, so uh, today we've got a great lineup of speakers. Um, so we'll start with uh, some of the GAGE team, uh, research team presenting some evidence from their research. Uh, we'll then move on to some expert discussants. Um, and after that, we'll be um, hopefully about 20 minutes for a Q&A session. And after that, lunch, uh, which I'm sure everyone will look forward to. Um, so uh, I would like to start by introducing Nicola Jones, uh, who is the director of the GAGE programme, which is the DFID-funded nine-year global mixed methods gender and adolescence global evidence research programme. Uh, and she's conducted a huge range of policy research projects, particularly in East Africa, Asia and the Middle East. Over to you, Nicola. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Kathleen. Um, so I would just like to begin by framing some of the work that we're doing on adolescent voice and agency. Uh, so from when the business case for the GAGE uh, research program was set up five years ago in 2014, uh, there's really been considerable progress made in terms of raising the profile of adolescent girls in development circles. So if you think about the G7 Development and Finance Ministers meeting in Vancouver last year um, and the Women Deliver Conference this year where Zambia's uh, Natasha Mwanza shared the stage with presidents of Canada, Kenya and Ghana, I think we can see that some world leaders, at least, are finally recognizing the importance of showcasing and listening to girls' voices. So um, as we've heard, the UNCRC identifies young people's participation as a core pillar of the convention. And similarly, the Beijing Platform for Action singled out the girl child as one of 12 core priorities um, in terms of advancing gender <coughs> equality and women and girls' empowerment over the life cycle. And over the last uh, three decades, we have seen improvements in girls' access to education and empowerment um, and declines in many parts of the world in child marriage. But there's still a very long way to go to ensure that all adolescent girls and also their male peers in low and middle income countries can really exercise voice and agency in their families and communities. So I've recently um, come back from two fieldwork trips to Azraq camp, um, meeting with uh, very marginalized Syrian refugee adolescents in Jordan, and then last week just returned from a, a remote part um, of rural Ethiopia in the east and East Harage. And there what was really clear to me is it's not just that girls need opportunities to exercise voice and agency within families and communities, 
but that there's really this very urgent and daunting collective task, I would say, of ensuring that governments and development partners can work to translate these voices into adequate support and resourcing. So in terms of the data and evidence to advance this agenda, uh, we do now have better tools and targets to capture some changes in gender equality, um, not least thanks to goal five of the Sustainable Development Goals. But these really don't go far enough. So, for example, as a recent policy brief we put out in Gage highlighted, none of the SDG targets measure progress in girls' voice and agency. UNICEF's multi-indicator cluster surveys, which were in um, multiple countries now, span child survival, development and protection, but there are no modules on participation, voice and agency of young people. Uh, the UNDP's gender empowerment measure looks at formal political representation and decision making but has nothing on the antecedents of this in adolescence. And then if you look at the National Demographic and Health Surveys, um, they include questions about participation in decision making in the House, but they only survey for this part married 15 to 49 year olds. So we're not learning about what's happening to unmarried adolescent girls um, and let alone the younger ones from 10 to 14. So there's really a huge gap. So in order to help address this gap, um, Gage, through our longitudinal survey, uh, is following the lives of 18,000 adolescent girls and boys. Um, and we are looking through survey data and then in-depth qualitative research um, at adolescents' mobility, access to information, and say in decision-making relating to education, work, relationships, sexual and reproductive health, and marriage. So voice and agency, as you see in this diagram here, is one of the six core capability domains of the GAGE conceptual framework. And reflecting the importance we, replace, uh, we place sorry, on understanding the multi-layered context in which adolescents live, we're also then investigating adolescent and caregiver perceptions of gender norms that affect adolescent decision making as well as the programming and policy entry points to promote adolescent girls' collective capabilities through, for example, civic participation, exposure to role models, and leadership training. So today, as we reflect on this 30th anniversary of the CRC and the road forward, I would suggest that we need to be thinking about championing a strategic and bold agenda for change, one that puts adolescent voices center stage. And I think we need to be working towards at least four key things. So firstly, ramping up investments in a costed minimum package for all girls uh, in low and middle income countries uh, that includes not just academic learning, but also opportunities to develop voice and leadership skills. So for example, providing safe spaces, civic participation or volunteering initiatives, and funding for things such as girls' collectives or social innovation labs. Secondly, we need to be implementing complementary initiatives to shift the discriminatory gender norms uh, by engaging with communities to explore what arguments resonate for change, but also at the same time providing incentives such as, for example, cash transfers or scholarships to drive behavioral change faster. Thirdly, I think there's really a very urgent need for standardized indicators to measure progress in adolescent voice and agency um, related not just to SDG 5, but also, for example, in fulfilling the commitments of SDG 16.7 on ensuring responsive, inclusive, participatory decision making at all levels. 
And then finally, I would suggest that we need to revalue different forms of evidence, and especially participatory uh, research evidence that can bring to the fore adolescent voices. So um, evidence from our participatory research groups with adolescents who are usually overlooked, whether they're married girls or those living in, in uh, refugee settings, they're providing us with an especially rich picture. And some of these findings are in the, the reports and policy briefs you can see outside the room. Um, and trying to here capture the nuances of the opportunities and challenges that are facing those young people. So it also is giving us insights into what support mechanisms would be most conducive to advance adolescent voices in their own communities and more widely. So that's by way of a, an overview of the work on voice and agency. What we wanted to do now is just to highlight um, the particular experiences of particularly disadvantaged adolescents who are in our sample. So I'm going to just talk very briefly about um, our findings related to disability, and then uh, my colleagues Sara and Sylvia will reflect on some of the work with married adolescents in uh, settings of displacement. So, um, Thinking about disability, we're going to hear much more from, from Philip um, in his reflections, but I, I do think it's fair to say that in the last five years, including through the Global Disability Summit in London last year, um, we really have um, seen greater awareness about um, the ways in which disability inclusive development is central to meeting development goals, particularly because of the way that poverty and disability are so intertwined. So um, WHO and the World Bank estimate that 80% um, of all persons with disability are living below the poverty line. So it's a, a huge challenge to be addressed. And then if we look at children and adolescents with disabilities in particular, we also know that they're far more likely than their peers without disabilities to be denied their basic human rights. So at secondary school age, 26% of adolescents with disabilities were found by UNESCO last year to be out of school, compared to just 18% of their peers without disabilities. And then girls and women with disabilities are doubly disadvantaged. They're less likely than men to access education, healthcare, vocational uh, training and employment, and more likely to experience sexual and emotional violence and to face higher barriers to inclusion in social life and decision making. So engage. Um, we have ensured, because so often in regular surveys, young people with disabilities are overlooked, we have carefully constructed um, our sample to, to focus on young people. So in the survey research, we have at least 5% um, of, the, of the respondents who are young people with different types of disabilities. Uh, and then there are 10% of young people involved in our more in-depth qualitative and participatory research to make sure that we can really bring these voices out. And um, we have some very rich findings emerging from the participatory research done with young people with visual and hearing disabilities that I'd be happy to talk further about later. Um, we are doing this work in all our countries, but here I'm just going to focus in on Ethiopia to give you some um, examples. 
So if we think about uh, the Ethiopian context here, the government really does not know um, the prevalence or absolute numbers of young people with disabilities, in part because there's, no, there's been no national census for the last 12 years and the population's grown by over 30 million in that time period, and due also to the high levels of stigma that disability um, uh, is often associated with concepts of sin and curse. Um, so even if um, the census is being undertaken, it's very unlikely that people will be, be sharing that information for those reasons. And then in a context like Ethiopia, where malnutrition is high, the environment is risky, and healthcare is still quite basic, disability rates are likely to be especially high. So we found in terms of education and learning that adolescents with disabilities are 14% less likely to be enrolled than those without. And even by age 10 to 12, they're already a full year behind in terms of schooling. This is partly because of stigma and parents not wanting to um, take their children to school because of the, the social ostracization they may face, but also because the schools that can accommodate young people with disabilities are limited to urban areas um, with relatively little access for the bulk of the population in rural areas. And even when they do enroll, our qualitative work has highlighted that stigma and bullying from both peers and teachers, unfortunately, are causing many to drop out. Um, it's true there has been some progress. The government is recognizing that young people with disabilities are shut out of school and so they've set up special needs classrooms in some urban areas. So from grades one to three you can get tuition in sign language and braille, uh, but the classrooms are generally too few and under-resourced, um, but tremendously appreciated by the young people we've talked to with disabilities. We found that students as old as 20 are joining first grade because they've never before had the chance to learn. So there is some progress. Turning to health and nutrition, um, here again we have some quite sober uh, findings. Um, we found that while 90% of adolescents without disabilities report good health, only 45% of young people with disabilities report being healthy, and they're twice as likely to have had a serious illness or accident in the last year. And then partly reflecting their lower odds of attending school, but also because of stigma which suggests that they are not um, fit for marriage, only 14% of adolescents with disabilities can name a form of birth control compared to 25% of those without, suggesting um, also deprivation in terms of sexual and reproductive health services and knowledge. Turning to uh, psychosocial well-being, um, adolescents with disabilities also report far more emotional distress than those without disabilities. So we used a tool called the General Health Questionnaire where high scores indicate more distress and the average score of those young people with disabilities was three times higher than those without. Our qualitative work emphasized that adolescents with disabilities are lonely with many reporting no friends at all. Um, and we also found they were 40% less likely to be a member of any kind of club or group and 20% less likely to be talking uh, to their parents about key issues that affect their lives in terms of future aspirations and relationships. In terms of voice and agency, finally, here, adolescents with disabilities 
um, were found to have much less ability to make choices over their own lives and to participate in household and community decision making. So they were 8% less likely, for example, to have any role in decision making at household level. And then for older teens, we also see barriers at community level. So 21% reported that they were less likely to feel safe in their communities, meaning that many, and it's especially heightened for adolescent girls, don't leave home even when they have the choice. And then finally, if we're thinking about the event that Simon was flagging next week related to uh, the digital environment, because parents are often not prioritizing uh, their offspring with disabilities for spending, <coughs> Um, only 31% of older urban teens with disabilities had their own phones compared to 43% of their peers without disabilities. Um, and we found that several of the young people with hearing impairments told us that phones are actually really critical to helping them to connect and to work. So they said, you know, very few people know sign language, but texting allows them to easily communicate with anyone who's literate, and it can be really a lifeline, but even at this level um, in urban areas, that, you know, there's um, very significant discrimination. So I'm sure we'll hear much more from Philip about some of the, the key priorities in terms of addressing some of these critical disadvantages. Um, but I think what's very clear is that scaling up special needs education by adapting local schools is, is critical. Um, ensuring that inclusive um, services just in terms of, of health um, in particular uh, need to be invested in, but then to make sure that we're not only looking at these base, so-called basic services, but also thinking about how can school and communities ensure that there are opportunities for adolescents with disabilities to be interacting regularly with peers so that they can advance their voice at household and community levels. Thank you. Thanks very much, Nicola, for that uh, rich snapshot um, of the GAGE research and also the really concrete practical recommendations uh, you made as well. Uh, so we'll move on now to um, uh, two more of the re GAGE research team. Uh, so Sylvia Guglielmi is a qualitative researcher at GAGE, working primarily on research to support adolescents in refugee communities and tracking progress for adolescents in the SDG agenda. And she's co-leading the Rohingya Refugee Baseline Study in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, uh, which looks at the intersection of uh, gender and age in an evolving humanitarian context. Um, and then we'll hear from Sara Al-Hawidi, who's been working for the GAGE program in Jordan since the inception phase in 2018. She's a qualitative researcher focusing particularly on early marriage among Syrian and Jordanian communities and is also coordinating a participatory photography research uh, project with early married adolescents and adolescents with disabilities. And I think we'll see some photos from that project outside here. So um, I'll pass over first to Sylvia, who's joining us. They're both joining us uh, remotely. Over to you, Sylvia. Hello. Um, I, hope you, I hope you can hear me fine, those of you sitting in London, but also those joining remotely, such as myself. Um, it's a real pleasure to participate to this panel. Um, so I would like to provide a bit of an overview of Gage's work on child marriage in humanitarian context. And in line with the SDGs and the Agenda 2030's pledge to leave no one behind, Gage's sample not only includes vulnerable adolescents, but is actually weighted towards them. So out of the 18,000 young people in our sample, nearly 5,000 are refugees, and of those, 1,000 are already married girls. And when it comes to child marriage, Gage really tries to look at the issue holistically and look at all sides. 
So firstly, we are focused on exploring how a girl's broader disadvantage leaves her at risk of child marriage, but equally how she's opened up to um, another set of risks once she has already been married. Secondly, we are focused on exploring ways to both prevent child marriage, but also on ways to support already married girls. Thirdly, we understand that while empowerment and empowering adolescent girls is key, frequently they often have limited agency and very little decision-making power over their own lives. So efforts must engage the broader community, their families and the parents, as well as their partners. And finally, we also understand that context is key. Um, and this is doubly true in refugee context where child marriage tends to be amplified as well as its effects. Uh, next slide, please. So now just a, um, a brief snapshot of our methodology. We have specific tools on looking at what works to prevent child marriage. So by using individual and in-group interviews with adolescents, parents, and community members, we explore particularly who is making the decisions regarding child marriage and also what beliefs are driving those decisions. Uh, for example, we investigate whether parents are marrying their daughters to protect their reputations for reasons to do with family honor or financial reasons or also uh, safety re reasons which come out quite strongly in our qualitative work in refugee context. And we also explore with the parents of married girls um, who might shift those beliefs uh, about the desirability of child marriage and which arguments are more likely to gain traction or which incentives are, are most likely to create change. So, for example, in the Rohingya baseline research um, I'm co-leading alongside consortium partners in Cox's Bazar, Bangladesh, uh, some preliminary qualitative found findings have shown that when community awareness or programs um, messages to prevent child marriage are disseminated by religious and community leaders called Majus in that context, parents are very, very receptive to them. Uh, next slide, please. Thank you. And finally, we, are, we also have a specific tool set to look at how to support already married girls. For example, we ask young brides detailed about details about their lives since and how they have changed since they've been married. So um, we can that way best explore entry points for where services might best target their needs and vulnerability. We also ask them what they do and they can map out their activities and what they do on an average day, whether they are allowed to make decisions uh, that impact their everyday lives, such as whether they can leave the house or they have the ability to voice their opinions on spacing their pregnancies. So again, in the, in the Rohingya case study, we find that mobility is incredibly restricted once girls are married. They are pretty much confined in their makeshift shelters. And when they do go out, they have to always be accompanied and they must be um, fully covered, including their hands. And we also, in our in-depth interviews, ask girls what services they are already accessing and how those services might be improved. And finally, because our research in refugee context um, has consistently found that social isolation is a critical theme for married girls, several of our tools explore their social networks where we look for ways to bridge deficiencies in accessing support networks, 
but also try to bring out the strengths um, of these networks and how they can be further strengthened. And thank you very much. That's where I'll close. And I'll hand over to my colleague, Sarah from Jordan, who has done um, a lot of work with Syrian and Palestinian married girls. Thank you. Thank you, Sylvia. Um, I'm very glad to be joining this panel today. Uh, so I will start with the findings that um, we have been working on. Uh, so uh, I will start with what are we learning about what drives child marriage. Throughout interviews with uh, adolescents and family members, um, community key informants and service providers, uh, Gage has learned quite a bit about early marriage, um, child marriage um, drivers in a refugee context. So while Gage is working with the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh and also with the Palestinian refugees in Gaza, I am today going to focus only on Jordan um, and the Syria, both Syrian and Jordanian um, refugees that are living in um, Jordan. So while social norms uh, that value girls for their reproductive capa capacity is key, how those norms are framed by re respondents varies. So Syrian parents um, reported that child marriage was important, so they ensured that their daughters' reputations were uh, remained uh, unsolid once they became adolescents. Because neighbors gossip about these girls, speculating that they may have boyfriends, and these gossips not, yani, not only damages um, uh, the girls' um, marriage prospects, but it also reflects badly on the family. Parents often prefer to marry their daughters on, the, on their mid-adolescence, and some Syrians fathers uh, admitted that they marry their girls off so they can have more privacy for themselves since they are living in a small caravans or apartments, the whole family. And also Syrian husbands admitted that um, they prefer to marry an adolescent's bride because they can have more control over her as um, uh, her behavior as a wife. And also Palestinian refugee mothers uh, told us that they prefer marriage over schooling and education for their adolescent girls. And fathers added to that that it's very difficult to find uh, the good man or um, someone who's good for his daughter as a husband. So it's better to be done during adolescence. And for both Syrian and Palestinian refugees, pressure from extended family is very important because mostly the girls are married to cousins. Next slide, please. Uh, what are we learning about who decides is very important, especially in Jordan. Respondents agreed that a, a very few of these uh, child marriages are um, free choice love matches. Um, early marriages are mostly arranged, um, usually by fathers, um, and uh, quite a few of these marriages were actually forced. Early married girls in Jordan, both Palestinian and Syrian refugees, almost universally reported that they would um, uh, they would prefer that if they can delay this marriage and finish their schooling first. Uh, while just a few tried uh, to unsuccessfully to stop um, this marriage and refuse it, girls reported that they acqu uh, acquiesced only because they were, you know, there was no point of not doing so. And parents actually reported that uh, regardless whatever the girl thinks, this marriage would have taken place. Um, for uh, the girls who were married uh, because of love matches, they have admitted that they were too young actually to have this choice and they weren't actually um, acknowledging the ramifications of what they are um, actually choosing. Next slide. What are we learning about the impacts of child marriage? 
Uh, first of all, married girls face violence from husbands, in-laws, and um, parents, and even brothers. As a uh, married 17 years old Syrian girl said, I lived with my mother-in-law, and she would ask my brother to beat me. And a 19-year-old Syrian young woman, divorced in a host community, told us that her husband used to violent her. And she said, you, he used to pour water in my ears because these things don't leave any marks on the outside. For a few of the married girls who were allowed to actually move outside of the house without an escort, that's to actually um, protect her reputation and the family honor um, of the marital family, of course. Um, in Jordan, only 28% of the girls, the married girls, are um, allowed to, to move out of the house uh, on a daily basis. Um, compared to 61 of their unmarried peers. And nearly all the married girls that we have been working with are socially isolated. They are confined to home and rarely allowed um, unmonitored access to uh, communication technology, and they have to lose all their access to their friends after marriage. Um, as a divorced 18-year-old Syrian girl mentioned to us, once my husband, once my husband's nephew was showing me some photos on his phone, he was paranoid. He was extremely paranoid, so he beat me. Uh, most married girls are overwhelmed by the adult responsibilities they have. So girls reported being suicidal because they were so distressed by their lives. And a surprising, a very large number of the married girls reported that they were unprepared for the sexual aspect of marriage. And some fled out of their um, home and their wedding nights. They were unaccepting the idea and the thought, and some were actually raped. During the key informed, uh, informants, uh, it was actually uh, very helpful that explained to us that girls don't understand that pregnancy is a result of sex. As a key informant in a host community mentioned to us, I worked with some children who were pregnant and they found out that they are pregnant in their like sixth, ninth month because these children do not know that sexual relations make the woman pregnant. Across refugee context and uh, all, most child marriages uh, result in uh, early pregnancy because in-laws and, and husbands don't allow girls to have any access to any kind of contraceptions or birth control uh, methods um, because protect, the protection of children is a primary driver for child marriage. In Jordan, only 43% of the married girls could recognize a, uh, uh, one of the contraceptions when presented in a list. It was not um, uncommon for us that we meet a 19-year-old girl pregnant with her fourth or fifth child, and it was um, we have met an 11-year-old girl with her first child. Um, across context also, uh, very few of the married girls have access to any educational services or any form of education, and the girls who were actually enrolled in schools prior to being married, um, they have been um, prohibited from their education by the husbands and the, the in-laws. Uh, in Jordan, only 9% of the married girls are enrolled in school, um, compared to 65% of the unmarried peers. Where respondent noted that poverty is a key driver for child marriage, we have noticed during our work that is 
Poverty is a result of child marriage, and girls reported that by telling us that when they have children and the expenses go higher, um, so uh, the depth of poverty was often extreme. Some young mothers even um, reported food insecurities despite the food aid. Okay, and married girls have extremely, extremely limited ability to make and control their own um, incomes because the family doesn't allow the girls to work outside of the houses, which we're talking about the marital family, husbands and in-laws. Uh, in Jordan, only 13% of the girl, married girls were, yani, were working in um, paid work in the last year. And only 21% of the girls have spent money in the last month. We can go to the next slide, please. Ah, ah so I, I know that. That's the policy and programming implications. We can go through that. Okay. I'm sorry that the slide is not there. I can do that for you. <laughs> okay, so for policy and programming implications, we uh, recommend actually working with girls and their future partners, their families and communities to help actually prevent child marriage. We have to keep these girls in school um, and emphasizing the emotional, the health, um, the economic advantages of adult marriage. And uh, also, uh, we recommend providing adolescents with age-targeted programming that aims to empower girls and helping boys to develop um, uh, positive masculinities. Uh, and we advise to um, target parents with parent education classes that address gender norm and actually incentive them to refuse this child marriage throughout um, cash or in-kind transfers. Uh, and the most important for me um, is uh, raise the legal age of marriage to 18 with no exceptions. Uh, since in Jordan it is 18 years old, but um, uh, girls can get married legally at the age of 15, and it is a very easy process. Um, and ensure that the government and UN employees and their household are not in violation, since it is a big phenomenon here in Jordan, and especially in the Syrian refugees community, that they are getting married without legal um, contracts. So it's, uh, they have no rights, they are losing a lot of uh, uh, their rights throughout doing that, and we have facing that a lot through our work and research. Uh, and we recommend actually providing uh, girls with a, a comprehensive package of programming that includes um, access to safe places and psychosocial support, informal education, um, and SRH um, uh, information and uh, care, and also legal assistance aimed at eliminating violence. Thank you. Thank you very much. For questions. Uh, thank you to both of you. Thank you. All of the Thanks. I think there were some really powerful examples of just how little control some uh, adolescent girls have over their lives and how important it is to work with families and communities um, to address some of those challenges. Um, so I'm now going to hand over to our um, expert discussants um, to talk us through some of the issues. Uh, we have about four or five minutes for each, and then we'll go into a wider conversation. Um, so firstly, I'd like to introduce Phil Hanks, who's the Partnerships Manager and Youth Technical Lead at Leonard Cheshire. Uh, Phil currently manages Leonard Cheshire's Youth Influencing Programme, 2030 and Counting. 
The programme empowers youth with disabilities to report on and advocate for their rights through the framework of the Sustainable Development Goals. Thank you, Kathleen. Um, and good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be on the panel today. Um, firstly, let me just say how important I think that uh, the GAGE research is, particularly with a focus on disability, um, just incredibly important. And particularly, Nicola, when you sort of were talking very much around the lack of um, disability disaggregated data and just being able to really fully understand the picture. I work on a program called 2030 and Counting which looks at training youth with disabilities um, as citizen reporters to look at how they can generate qualitative data themselves in their communities to look at how they can take charge and control of the issues that affect their lives. Um, this is one of a number of projects that looks at uh, disability disaggregated data. Um, Lena Cheshire has developed the Disability Data Portal in collaboration with DFID um, for the Global Disability Summit um, and is another way that we very much look at um, how we can get more sort of snapshots of ideas um, of the information that can be really looking at, at, at painting that picture. I think if we look at what the data is telling us, and I think very much in terms of the findings that have come out from, from the GAGE research, it continues to tell a story um, that adolescents and youth with disabilities are being left behind. I think a couple of examples that came out from the presentation, um, so children with disabilities less likely to be in school, the enrolment gap just getting wider. Um, I think this very much chimes with Lena Tesh's own research. Um, so Lena Cheshire developed a report called Still Left Behind in partnership with Ungai, um, which really looks again to start to understand what the barriers are, particularly um, for girls uh, with disabilities and their barriers to, towards education. This looked at the context in Kenya, which is one of the countries where Lena Cheshire delivers its inclusive education programme. Um, and I think if you look at formal education as a lens um, and being uh, sort of the building blocks of voice and agency, then it becomes even more important to, to look at uh, how this can start to impact on how youth with disabilities see themselves and their role in, in communities. I think another thing that really struck me from uh, the presentation was very much around, and I think which is central to, to being able to address all the challenges that have been raised, uh, is very much that youth with disabilities are unaware of their rights to equality. Um, and therefore they can't exercise them. Um, and I think this is something very much that Lena Cheshire is trying to address through 2013 counting. Um, this is, I think, very much about uh, the, the programme being able to look at um, how to put into practice, I think, some of the core elements that came out of the conceptual framework that you mentioned earlier. Um, and we've heard very much that youth with disabilities are the most marginalised uh, in communities um, and 2013 counting very much is about looking at youth with disabilities in the driving seat. So um, we train the youth with disabilities very much from the, uh, the perspective that it's, it's challenging this idea that uh, adolescents and youth with disabilities can't be a part of the solution to some of the, the challenges that they're facing. So we tell youth with disabilities that they're experts of their own experience. This is what they're bringing to the table, a better uh, understanding and insight for communities and community leaders about the actual challenges that, that they're facing. Just very quickly in terms of 
what the program is about and how it works. So um, it's three phases. We, we train youth with disabilities uh, both around the skills associated with citizen reporting, so what makes a good story, what's fact versus fiction, um, but as alongside that, uh, being able to build understanding of the global framework, so like the Sustainable Development Goals, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, so really being able to, to help them break down these, these concepts that they feel are very abstract. Before we started um, the project in, in the pilot countries of Kenya, Zambia and the Philippines, around a quarter of, of the youth with disabilities that we started to engage could not tell us anything meaningfully about the Sustainable Development Goals and how they were a framework to help improve, improve their lives. Um, but at the end of the programme, uh, you know, all participants were able to, to really look at how important being able to align the issues that affect them with the Sustainable Development Goals and how their governments will be putting forward plans to make sure that they're not left behind was something that we found was really important. Um, after the training, we kind of led to this data collection phase. So it was very much around youth with disabilities out in their communities, talking to their peers and documenting the experiences that they faced in relation to access to healthcare, education um, and employment. So the three SDGs that the youth with disabilities self-selected in terms of the ones that are most important in their lives. And then that generated an evidence base that led to the third and final stage of, of influencing. So youth with disabilities being able to present to policymakers in their community um, you know, what they wanted to see change. Um, uh, a couple of things just really quickly before we move on, so I think it was really interesting Nicola that you mentioned the role of technology and I think this is definitely something that we found on 2013 Counting that, that uh, youth with disabilities were using their mobile phones to collect the data and submitting them through either text message or voice recording or video through a chat app. This is something that not just breaks down barriers of participation for youth with disabilities to be engaged in the issues that affect their lives but also I think the um, the sort of new generation uh, that are very tech savvy and looking at how um, social media and, and access through your phone to policymakers and decision makers in a way that, that previous generations haven't necessarily viewed that as a platform to bring about change was something that was really exciting and holds a lot of potential, I think. Um, and I think if we, just to end on, on, from my perspective, I think the question around, so how can we as organisations and civil society look at having an, an input into the way that youth with disabilities can be addressing um, uh, this idea that they're, they're absent from the Sustainable Development Goal Monitoring? What we found in our project um, that was really interesting that I just wanted to share was um, that I think the, the way that we structured the programme was very much about embracing the disability community and disabled people's organisations in particular. So um, being a, really being able to support the disability movement um, to recognise the role that youth with disabilities can play in their communities. So um, the DPOs that we worked with often would see youth with disabilities as complainers and being able to change them from complainers to advocates and understanding that it's far better for youth with disabilities to be having a seat at the table rather than um, other people talk on their behalf was something that was really important and, and something that our partners um, really uh, engaged with. <laughs> I think definitely I would also flag the importance of role models and that includes peer role models. So uh, Leonard Cheshire was in, engaged in some research with UNICEF a couple of years ago to look at the leadership opportunities that youth with disabilities had um, uh, and that very much showed that female youth with disabilities uh, um, were, were not accessing leadership opportunities uh, in the same way that their, their male peers were. 
Um, uh, and that very much led to us looking at having um, lead citizen reporters that were, were able to recruit and motivate and engage um, other youth with disabilities. So we recruited majority female lead citizen reporters and that had a big impact um, and around almost 60% of our participants were female youth with disabilities. Um, so the importance of role models I think is really important. Um, but I also think it's about creating these safe spaces. So having youth-led, team-based, informal education environments where these types of initiatives can really look at building the confidence of youth with disabilities and, and helping them understand the role that they can play. Doing that alongside organisations that have mandates um, to be engaging with government um, was, was a, a way in for a lot of youth with disabilities that we spoke to that had second thoughts about whether they should take part in this programme. They didn't think it was a, for them. They didn't think the, uh, they could have an impact or would be listened to. Uh, and so those safe spaces are really um, important. And finally, just to flag again, I think um, helping youth with disabilities really uh, understand their, their, their rights and, and being able to break down what are often abstract um, uh, cons concepts like the Sustainable Development Goals and the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities are really important so that um, uh, youth with disabilities have the tools as well as the support and the environment to be able to, to engage. Thank you very much, Phil. And I think really important to reflect on the importance of challenging perceptions, um, both among young people themselves and, and others uh, with, with power, that they're not the experts in their own lives, because of course they really are. Um, so we'll move on now to um, Helen Staski, who is the Head of Policy at the International Rescue Committee, IRC, in Europe. Uh, she's leading strategic policy engagement with European governments and civil society in line with IRC European priorities, including urban displacement, cash transfers, women's protection and empowerment, and humanitarian access. Thank you. Well, first of all, um, just to say thank you so much for the opportunity to both hear the details of the GAGE research and also to comment on it. Uh, the IRC is part of the GAGE uh, consortium and has worked with GAGE uh, directly on a number of research projects. So, yeah, it's great to be able to come here and comment on some of that. Um, so I'm going to talk very specifically about uh, adolescent girls who are refugees, IDPs, or uh, caught in uh, crisis and conflict. Um, we work in over 40 countries worldwide, and we've prioritised working with adolescent girls for a number of years, and we've been developing our programme models based on uh, continuous research um, and, and kind of refining of that program expertise. And that research, as I'll go on to say, mirrors much of what's been said here and much of it has been in collaboration with GAGE and looks not only at um, the challenges for adolescent girls to access core life-saving services, but also looks at those drivers and root causes um, for issues like early enforced marriage and FGM. So just quickly moving into IRC's main approach, and our main approach is based, as others have said as well, around this, this concept of a safe space. Um, particularly in humanitarian contexts, for those that don't work on this issue more directly, it's, it's often um, a surprise to think that uh, people would need a safe space inside a refugee camp because a refugee camp itself is supposed to offer sanctuary. And yet um, our analysis, it won't be a surprise to anyone in the room or probably listening, is that, of course, rates of gender-based violence are incredibly high um, in displacement contexts. Uh, displacement itself drives uh, gender-based violence. It doesn't create gender-based violence. The, uh, the, the drives of those are pre pre-exist the crisis, but they are certainly exacerbated by them in, in multiple ways that, um, again, won't be a surprise to, to people in this room. 
So what we do is we have a, uh, a Girls Shine curriculum model that we've developed over the last few years uh, and we're continuing to refine and that's because we've taken a very specific uh, both gender and age lens to our safe spaces uh, not just realizing that adolescent girls often fall between the cracks when it comes to services you know they they're not serviced by the um, child services and they're not serviced by the um, the spaces for adult women but also, uh, you know, as been mentioned before, that adolescence is this real time of cognitive and physical change. And adolescent girls are particularly vulnerable to these, uh, you know, life-changing decisions that are often made uh, w without their consent. So just to bring up a couple of things from the research, you know, I was really, uh, it was really uh, useful to kind of hear that whole line about uh, that whole deconstruction of who decides for adolescent girls. And I think that's finding those causal pathways is incredibly important for how we design our programs. So our Girls Shine curriculum model has five key elements to it that really tried to support the autonomy and agency of adolescent girls. One is this safe space, which is essentially you know, a trusted environment where adolescent girls can come together, they can express themselves, they can have a you know, free flow of conversation, and they can access services. And I think when we hear some of the, uh, the data that's come out of Cox's Bazaar, for example, where adolescent girls are just simply not given that freedom of movement, to have that safe space uh, is, incredibly, uh, is incredibly vital. Then in that safe space, we <coughs> deliver a curriculum, essentially a life skills curriculum that builds adolescent girls' uh, capacity for negotiation, for decision-making, talks about the different types of GBV, um, and looks at uh, women and girls' rights and access to services. It then has a dimension about uh, training up mentors. These can be older adolescent girls themselves and wider women in the community and this really speaks to that issue that was again raised by Gage earlier about the the support networks um, and this is about expanding that safety and support network and in context of displacement that support network is even further decimated um, then this key uh, dimension of engaging caregivers engaging parents or other caregivers and the wider family and again just reflecting back on what we've heard from Gage about who makes the decisions in people's lives and how vital it is. And then on the same line, you know, the outreach to the wider community um, and outreach to wider syst health systems uh, and psychosocial support. So there's a lot in there, uh, and we've developed a safe space toolkit. IRC um, and IMC have developed that across, and we've, uh, from our learning across 18 settings and... Um, we have just put it out, I believe, on the GBV Responders Network, so it's there for uh, any NGO to take up and use, and really happy to talk to anyone afterwards about that. And we're really glad that uh, actually having a safe space for adolescent girls is now part of the GBV minimum standards. So we think that, there, you know, from my perspective, there is this growing expertise and growing evidence and research on the prevalence, on the drivers of us really understanding the specific needs of adolescent girls. Um, and just to kind of make a quick plug to the other bit of research that underpins all of this, which is the What Works, a research which, again, many people will be very familiar with, um, and particularly a study on South Sudan that looked at prevalence and drivers and had a specific uh, focus in one part on adolescent girls. And I think raised some really uh, disturbing uh, facts about intimate partner violence, which has tended to be an under-recognized form of, of gender-based violence. 
So again, I, not time to go into all, all the statistics, but for example, in Juba, you know, 39% of adolescent girls had uh, experienced IPV from intimate partners, and that uh, and the incidence of IPV were uh, quadrupled in villages that had experienced uh, an attack. So again, just really skimming over quickly some of the drivers between displacement and and IPV, and again, just you know, lots of data about how little uh, adolescent girls actually access services. So we're learning a lot from all of this, um, and, and the whole sector is learning a lot, but why aren't we seeing change on the ground? And I think this is what's really disturbing. And we've got, you know, lots of us are saying, we've got to make 2020 count. We've got so much coming up in 2020. We've got 25 years since the Beijing Platform for Action. We've got the decade of delivery for the SDGs will begin in 2020. Um, we've had uh, CEDAW just reflected on and um, uh, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. We've got the Global Refugee Forum next month. All kinds of places to make commitments where many commitments will be made and we'll be trying as many other advocacy organisations to get adolescent girls both in there. But is it going to actually change anything at the ground? And I think there's, there's three things that we need to really be thinking about um, in terms of that. And just a quick plug, we have a report coming out next week which will be um, giving more detail of uh, these kind of recommendations. One is about aligning with the SDGs. So I think this is really great that, that Gage have recognised that. You know, we can't make this simple divide between crisis contexts and stable contexts. And again, don't have time to go into that, but we know that m most crises are protracted. So having an SDG plan for crisis context where you can bring in um, both the humanitarian and development actors, but you can also bring in the ministries, you can also bring in security services, you can deal with that whole gambit of stakeholders that need to uh, be brought in for a comprehensive response to adolescent girls that looks across all of those different drivers in society and in service provision and in the home. So both reporting at the global level, we need crisis-affected populations in those SDG action plans and reporting, and we need SDG action plans in crisis contexts. Then we need funding. And not just more funding, we need multi-year flexible funding. We cannot do this work on root causes. We cannot work with local partners. We cannot challenge gender norms over the, the the longevity of a protracted crisis with three-month grants. It's just not going to work. Um, and we need that flexibility. And we need to be promoting what many of us are now calling this nexus approach to programming. So bringing together actors that haven't traditionally worked together. So definitely as humanitarians, we need to get much better at working with local systems, strengthening those systems over time and not just putting in parallel systems. And we need to get much better to linking to, to agendas like the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And for adolescent girls in crisis, they are central to that Women, Peace and Security agenda. Their, their voice and their agency in shaping UK, uh, societies as they rebuild themselves so that those societies have gender equality as a much higher priority is absolutely essential. And so finally, I'll just come back to this, this business of research and how it can promote voice and agency. So we've invested in uh, a new piece of research recently, which is on the back of the What Works um, research, and it's to try and strengthen our work uh, to prevent early enforced marriage, but also to work with uh, recently married adolescent girls, as has been already mentioned by Gage. And without going through all of the, you know, uh, intensified vulnerabilities that they face, as has already been mentioned, um, 
you know, we really find that from the research that these girls have been ostracized uh, from both the unmarried girls, but then also very marginalized in the married space. If those girls then get divorced for whatever reason, they're further ostracized. So finding those ways to bring those adolescent girls in and not just let them drop off our attention is really, really important. And we have in that research, we've done three things, I think, which are participatory. One is the, the action research where we trained adolescent girls' mentors to actually collect data. The second is bringing together adolescent girls to co-create the messages and to feed back on the messages themselves. And the third is to engage with them on how you disseminate. So certainly some very interesting feedback coming back from our Jordan pilot to say, you know, the way is to not sit down and talk people through very dense um, and very technically worded uh, research findings or the SDG framework, but it's actually to use creative processes, um, participatory discussions, uh, theatre, uh, uh, art, other ways of bringing these issues alive and for soliciting feedback. Thanks. Thank you very much. It's great to hear some concrete examples of how, how the research is informing programming, but also the need for really more sort of concerted action now going forwards to really translate it all into change. Um, and finally, but not least, we'll come to Faith Mwangi Powell, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Girls Not Brides um, and is responsible for catalyzing the uh, Girls Not Brides partnership strategy and ensuring that the Secretariat is supportive and responsive to the broader movement for change. Um, she's responsible for inspiring and developing a high-performing team to ensure that Girls Not Brides can fulfil its mission, live its values and deliver against its goals and targets. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to hear the work you're doing on research for adolescent girls. Uh, last week I, came, I was in Nairobi for ICPD and I left that meeting, I sat in a session and I left that meeting feeling, feeling very angry and I, and I want us to be angry. I really want us to, to leave this room feeling angry, but angry for the fact that mm -hmm. there is a lot of conversation. 25 years on, we are still talking about putting adolescent girls at the center. The image we were shared with was an image of a 10-year-old girl who was pregnant. And I could, I could not take that image out of my head. And when you put that image in your head, you just get so annoyed and you think, why are we allowing this injustice? to continue today. So that is something I want you to, if you take nothing else from this, let's think about that. A 10-year-old girl who is pregnant and doesn't have a chance to, be, to, to fulfill her own dreams. Uh, 12 million girls get married every year below the age of 18 globally. As we sit here, and these statistics were very real in Nairobi last week, that maybe this hour or two hours we've spent here Maybe 20 girls have been married. Maybe many others have died trying to give birth, and many others are really struggling. And I work for Girls Not Brides, which to me is a privilege, because I feel like we are able to do something. We are a global partnership of 1,300 organizations in 105 countries trying to work together to not only raise the profile of this injustice, but also to work with communities, grassroots organizations, girls in their own community so that we can end this injustice. One of the things we were challenged in Nairobi was whether we should call it child marriage. Because they said when we call it child marriage, we kind of legitimize it. This is child rape. And 
we need to think about that. We did not come to consensus what we need to call it, but I think those are some of the things we are talking about. Listening to Sarah, was she Sarah? Yeah, listening to Sarah, I, I really got struck about some of the same things we are talking about, the drivers of child marriage. And one of the things we discussed last week, again in Nairobi, because it's so fresh in my mind, is a report which we call that, I think PLAN is part of that report, Tackling the Taboo. And this is the issue around adolescent sexuality. We can talk about poverty, we can talk about religion, we can talk about social norms, we can talk about all other things. But one thing we never talk about is adolescent sexuality. It's when people don't want to control young girls, young boys, and I'll put them there, sexuality. That's why we have some of these things, but we don't talk about it. Because sometimes we are afraid to talk about it, it's sensitive, and we did talk about it in Nairobi, and we were a little bit afraid because the meeting was surrounded with a bit of protest and people are really anxious about the issues we were talking about and that was one of the issues around anxiety. How can we talk about sexuality of 14, 15, 16, 13 year old boys and girls and we know many of them are sexually active and sometimes they get married so that we, we, we protect them from being uh, teenage pregnancy. You know, it's all, it's all really surrounded in that and creates stigma. And I'm reminded, as again listen to, listening to Sarah about uh, one of our colleagues, we are looking to trying to bring the voices of young girls, and we have a young girl in Lebanon. Her own friend got married at the, at the age of 13. She got pregnant, and she had complications at birth, and today that girl cannot walk. And that girl got so angry, and I like being angry for the right reasons. I don't just get angry, I don't think I'm an angry person, I don't. But I like getting angry for right reasons. She got so angry and she started being an activist to end child marriage in her own community. She has gone and rescued and gone homes, homes where she knows there is potential for a girl to be married and has rescued or saved so many girls from marriage. She doesn't have the resources to do it. She's just doing it on voluntary capacity, mm -hmm. and she's doing it, and she's rescuing girls. We have a Syrian refu refugee, again, in Lebanon. We went, we visited Lebanon, so that's why what uh, Sarah was talking about really resonated with me. And this girl was married at the age of 16. She has, four she has three children now, but she has worked so hard to share her own story, her own challenges about sexual relations because she did not know that was an expectation when you get married. She did not know that she would get pregnant when she gets married. And she has really, really struggled. And she has fought to protect her own sister who is 16. And her sister has not got married. But the price she has had to pay to protect her own sister, she has to be running from one camp to the other. She has no really safe refuge because she has to run away from these parents, aunties, uncles, sisters, brothers who are working and trying to force her to get involved in child marriage. So we are trying to promote the voices of young people because we recognize that young people are really the agents of change. And I, I worked on FGM. I have come from a background on FGM. And we were trying to see how can young people be spokesperson for their own rights and for the things they want to see happen. And we started establishing what we call the youth-led 
movements. The young people in Africa, we were working in 10 countries, and every country we went to, they were saying, we do not want a place on the table. We do not even want a table. We want to create our own space. We want to create our own table because we are not leaders of tomorrow. We are leaders of today. And I'm so encouraged by some of the things I've heard here today because if we really, really empower young people globally, they have the power to stop this. They really have the power. And I used to tell the young people in Africa, if all the young people across Africa say they are not going to have FGM done to their own children, or they are not going to have child marriage for their own children and they become real champions of change, we can stop this. So we need to really bring that, that um, generation of change and it's the young people who are going to be that generation of change. So when I worked with the girls' generation, where we worked on FGM, we set up what we call turn up the volume. And we were turning up the volume for young people so that they can take up leadership positions. We support them, and I always say we support them from the back. We support them from the back so that they can be champions of change. At the Girls Not Brides, we launched what we call Speak Out Startup. And again, it's a youth leadership program where we are building youth leaders so that the youth can take up position with our support at the forefront to say, while it may be too late for some, maybe they're already married, it may be too late for some, they already have had FGM, it's not too late for their own children. And we are giving them the tools, the resources they need and so that they can really spearhead change. This is a training program. It's happening in India, it's happening in Nepal, it's happening in Kenya, and in many of the other countries we are going to be able to roll it up so that young people can really be engaged in that. When we talk about the people with disabilities, I see young women, young girls with disabilities having multiple vulnerabilities. You cannot even begin to un unpeel some of the challenges they face. So again, it's creating spaces for them to engage within the context through which they exist. It's very easy to marginalize somebody because they don't hear. It's very easy to marginalize because they don't see. And it's very easy to leave someone behind because of the vulnerabilities they have. We need to be more intentional. We need to be more deliberate so that we create these spaces for the girls we want to bring forth. The other thing which made me angry in Nairobi, I was very angry in Nairobi. My home, so I can afford to be hungry there. And it's, it's the commitment. There were a lot of great commitments from, we, I think the ICPD had maybe 17 presidents, which was the highest number of presidents have sat in the midst of. So there was a lot of power, political power, and they, ha they were saying the right statements. One of the things which I hoped one of them would say is domestic financing. It's very easy to keep talking about the things you are going to say. The Kenya president, who is my president, talked about adding FGM in, 2020, in 2022 and adding child marriage in 2030. He did not tell us how. Because it needs resources, it needs finances. You need to say, and this is the amount of money my government is going to put to add this issue. As long as we are all looking out for, help to for our help to come outside, 
we are not taking this issue seriously, and I, and I hoped I could be able to say that. So we also need to look within. What can we do? What can we be able to do so that we change the status quo? Because for me, as long as we are having 12 million girls getting married below the age of 18, it's a, it's a global crime. And we need to be out there in the street saying this is wrong. And people marginalized with, uh, adult, with uh, disabilities, again, this is a crime. There's, we can do much more. We can do better. We are more interconnected than we were in the past. So how can we even use that interconnectedness so that we really do better in the things we are doing? We are looking to deepen our engagement within uh, Girls Not Brides, really looking at change and really defining that change. We have started calling our pathway to zero, looking at what is the pathway to zero so that by 2030 we can start saying these are the number, actual number of girls who have been rescued from child marriage. So come and go to our website, there's lots of resources there. Come and talk to me when we break for lunch and then we can tell you a little bit more. But I'll add with a caveat. I've been in my job for two months. So maybe there are so many things I have not said. And Rachel, my colleague, is here with me. She's been there a little longer than I have. So if you need to hear a little bit more about our learning agenda, which is an agenda where we are looking at what works mm -hmm. and what are some of the opportunities we can engage. And finally, one of the things we are looking to build is to build a collaborative platform. I cannot agree with you more. Mm -hmm. We can do much, much better if we all work together, sometimes shed off our titles, shed off our organizational boundaries, and see how can we hold hearts and do this. Let's end child marriage. Thank you. A big thanks to all of our. Thank you. And I think you're right, we should be angry um, and use that to fuel our action going forwards. Um, but also a reminder that you know, young people are taking leadership yeah. and can do even more with our support. Yeah. And, and that these issues are political as well. There are others out there who don't want progress, so we need to be even more coordinated yeah. in, in doing that. So we've got about 10 minutes now for a Q&A session. So I'm going to invite uh, questions from the room. I've also got uh, a wonderful oh, list wow. of questions that have come in online as well from people Come watching on. us <laughs> remotely. Um, but I'm first again to invite the audience here um, to, to raise their hands and ask any questions. Yes, over here. And if you could give your um, name and your affiliation, if you have one as well. Hi, thanks very much. My name's Tom Palmer. I'm from Islamic Relief Worldwide. Uh, my question's for, for Nicola and her colleagues. Um, the findings of your research so far are going to be incredibly useful to ensure that our programming, the programming of other organisations, will be more responsive to uh, the issues facing um, adolescence. And I think particularly admire the intersectional approach you've taken in terms of looking at age, gender, disability, geography, displacement status as well. My question is about how organizations like mine, which we can use secondary research, but we also need to do our own analysis and assessments um, to look at the contextual drivers in the particular context we work. We work in a lot of crisis contexts where it's difficult to do really in-depth research. How can we adapt the tools that you've been using in this research to embed them into our standard assessment, design, monitoring and evaluation processes? Are there things that we can take directly? Are you going to publish the tools and are there things that we can do to, you know, to work together to, 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 to use those approaches, especially the way you're using intersectional analysis, to embed them into our standard sort of practices to, to ensure that our 
our programming can be more responsive in, in difficult contexts. Thank you. Take a couple more quick questions from the room. And if you can keep your questions brief in the interest of time, that would be great. Uh, do I introduce myself? Yeah. Okay, my name's David Banks. Um, I worked in Ghana for the last six or seven years. And I just completed a piece of research on in um, the marginalised settler communities of the uh, Ghanaian forest. And a couple of things that came up was um, that, that kind of are very relevant to what you've said, I think, is this issue of um, collective rights over individual and, and individual responsibilities. And I just wondered what the, the panel's feelings were on, on those particularly in relation to the work that you do. And also the fact that these communities are marginalised and disenfranchised and have no power themselves. And, and therefore, how do individual um, rights fit in to that context, I guess? Thank you. I'm Saloni, I'm a PhD student from the University of Cambridge. Um, so I have a question about the ethics and cultural sensitivity of agency enhancing programs in communities where exercising agency puts women at risk of violence. And I work with women in slums in India and this is something I've seen that uh, the women I work with, they're part of an NGO run community education project and being part of the project, it uh, gives them many advantages but also um, puts them at risk and can lead to violence at home. And so if you could say something about that. Okay. Thanks very much for those great questions. If I invite, I think the first one was specifically <coughs> to Nicola. The other two, I'll just invite a couple of comments um, before we move on so we can still have time for a second round. Great. So I'll just address the first question um, from Tom. I think it's a, a very important one. We do have our baseline tools online. We're about to publish by the end of year our tools specifically related to child marriage and our next round of, of tools so we can share copies as soon as they're out. We are publicly archiving our survey at the moment um, in the UK longitudinal um, data archiving base so we can share that with you. Um, so we very much want to see the tools that we're developing as a public good. Um, we recognize though that in um, you know particularly um, fragile contexts that it is difficult getting access so you know we'd be very happy to, to discuss further some of the lessons we've learned about how to implement those um, and and who to work with. So. Um, it's a conversation we very much want to be having. We are planning early next year also to have a webinar to share further so people understand what are the tools that we have and how they could be applied. So we'll, we'll keep you updated on that front as well. Thank you. Um, would others like to take? Yeah. Um, I'll just answer that, that uh, question on, I want to answer it, but comment on that question about agency. I mean, yes, fundamentally, when women and girls are increasing their agency, there's a backlash. Um, and we've been looking both, uh, uh, we've been looking quite carefully at when, what that impact is, for example, when we did, uh, when we lead interventions for women's economic empowerment, for example, so we've done quite a lot of research into whether cash programming and enhancing women's access to cash does actually increase their vulnerability to gender-based violence. So without going into all of that, just to say it, it's very much a part of our program design and analysis. <laughs> but I think the key thing for me is about the, the partnerships with local women's organisations. It's those 
leaders in their own communities, those women who have been striving for change well before we got there and will be striving for change well after we leave, to be led by those agencies and to therefore be able to have the kinds of partnerships and the kind of resourcing that we can have an equal partnership, we can have a long partnership, we can support their capacity, their strategic engagement, we can highlight and amplify their voices when they are facing backlash, and we can continue to do research to make sure when we do interventions that you're not left with what one colleague called um, enlightened powerlessness, that you're giving women and girls all the information and all the, all the skills, but you're not actually supporting their economic, political, social empowerment so that they can take advantage of those skills. I'll comment on your question, but I'll also add a little bit on the ethics of agency. I think to recognize that uh, both child marriage or gender-based violence, as we like to call it, is a social norm in many communities. So really looking at the social dynamics within communities, the social networks, and more increasingly looking at gender transformative approaches, whereby we are not just looking at one issue, it's looking at how does child marriage relate to other issues within the community and addressing it from that approach, more inclusiveness, so that when the change happens, it's not one. We have seen people who have said they don't want to have FGM done, and they are really, or they don't want to be married, they go back to their communities, the social pressure, get married. So it's really making sure that we are looking at it from that gender transformative approach. In terms of collective rights versus individual rights, it's the same thing. When communities understand what is good for them, it translates into individual opportunities. Because I think these issues we are talking about really sit within the heart of communities. So understanding not only the context, but understanding the drivers of some of these issues will help those things translate into gains. I'll give you a very quick example. Like we went to a community in, in fact, Ghana is one of the most transformative countries in terms of gender-based violence, actually, within Africa. And they have reduced many of those. But we went to a community where there were so many women saying they do not want to have their girls married at the early age, but they, were, but they could not say that openly. So they ended up having girls live with their brothers to pretend they are married, but they were not, so that they conform to what the community is expecting. So transforming those norms at the community will help translate those collective rights at the individual rights. It's a longer conversation, I'm aware, and we can maybe chat a little bit if, if that's of interest. Yeah. Thank you very much. We've just got time for one or two quick questions from online. Uh, so firstly, a question from Nick Newland at Associated Country Women of the World. With the strongly regressive view of many nations influencing the nature of political negotiations around the world, and in light of celebrations around Beijing plus 25, SDGs plus five, SDG plus 5, etc., how do we better harness the expertise and commitment in the room and in our networks to push for collective, collective action change and the achievement of all that we know is necessary but seems so challenging in the current climate? Nick also added a few other questions, but I will move to someone else now in the interest of time. And from Farah from Gage and BIGD, what, in terms of adolescence, voice and agency, do you think are the key concerns in the context of Bangladesh? So from the very big picture to the slightly more country-specific, I'll open, open those for a few more comments. Um, no, I'm okay. Yeah. I think the first question, I think we need to partner. We need to work together. I think when there is so much force against us, we can only work better if we are working together. I think sometimes we are so confined by our own organizational boundaries that we don't actually see what we can give and looking at what we can take more than what we can give. So if we can be a bit more open 
I think it will help us really address some of the challenges we have. Yeah. Thank you. I think following the money, uh, really pushing for increased transparency and accountability where, go where governments are making all these pledges, what are the, how does that actually translate, what are they funding, um, and really trying to drive the quality of what donors are funding and, and challenge it at that level. And that requires partnership to bring together evidence and analysis from the field. Um, and to do something we're not very good at in the humanitarian sector, which is supporting national level advocacy and, and really going down to the, the specificity. You know, Cox's Bazaar is a really um, stark example of, of, a, of a situation where we know it's a protracted crisis, but there's very uh, little acceptance of that. Um, and it, that poses challenges. So, yeah, how, how we can actually come together in evidence and uh, lobby and advocate, I think, is uh, really important. Thank you. I think that's a really nice note to end on. Um, we're, we're out of time, so I won't say too much in the way of um, concluding remarks. And I think it would be impossible to sum up that discussion, given it's been, I think, very rich and so much um, food for thought in such a short time. But I suppose just to try and bring out some of the main themes we've heard about. I suppose firstly, it's just um, some really sort of powerful examples of how um, adolescence uh, voice and agency um, is not currently being realised and how little control many adolescents have over their own lives for various different um, reasons. But there, ha there has been some progress over the three decades since the uh, UN Convention on the Rights of the Child was adopted. But there's obviously some big gaps um, at different levels, whether we're talking, we've heard about um, just the visibility, lack of visibility of adolescents in data, the need for more evidence, the lack of engagement in decision making, whether it's families, communities, uh, or more at uh, sort of government level and so on. Um, so a lot of progress still needed, and particularly for those who are most marginalised. Um, secondly, I think although voice and agency are, of course, um, fundamental, uh, we have to be working together to address the barriers to those. Um, and we've heard again about what a, what a lot of those barriers really are. And I think social norms um, around gender, extremely important around disability, um, pressure on girls themselves around what kind of behaviour is acceptable or not, and on families and wider communities. And without addressing those sorts of structural barriers, um, we're not going to make a huge amount of progress. So we need to really focus on working together to, to, to make those changes. And we've also heard at the, the structural level how things like role models and things can make a really big difference. Um, for young people, seeing uh, others like them being in leadership roles, whether that's in the communities um, or, or higher up in governments and so on. And we know there's still a long way to go um, on that front. And then uh, finally, I suppose, thinking about the processes, we've got the uh, Beijing Plus 25 review, review process, we've got sustainable government, sustainable development goal review process, how can we collectively make sure that adolescents have a lot more of a voice in these processes um, than they currently do, and especially in this context where we've got an active pushback, particularly for girls um, and young women, uh, having voice and agency in their own lives um, and beyond. And certainly that's something that we're thinking a lot about and, and you know, pl planning for at Plan International UK. So I've personally, while obviously the, the challenges are great and many, I've found this a very hopeful discussion as well, hearing about all the efforts that are going on, the fact that young people are taking leadership roles um, and we can support them while making sure they remain safe 
because it does expose them to risk. So we need to do that carefully. Um, but that you know, if we if we focus on working together, breaking down, you know, working across organisational boundaries has been said a few times that we can we can make a lot of progress. So thank you very much to ODI uh, and the Gage Program for all of your excellent work and for hosting this discussion. And I hope we can continue it. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Music